One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ryan Sprague, and this is Somewhere in the Skies. Thursday, the panel members were seated around this table. It was a rather somber and impressive occasion, actually. I was a junior member, and I remember feeling considerably nervous and apprehensive about being in front of this powerhouse of scientists. But then, for the past four years, I had been scientific advisor to the U.S. Air Force on this very problem. There were two films that were, were of particular interest to the panel at that time. One was a film taken by a Navy officer while on vacation in Utah, near Tremonton, Utah. And the other was a film taken in Great Falls, Montana, by the owner of the local baseball team. The Utah film had already been subjected to some thousand or so man-hours of analysis by the Navy's Photographic Interpretation Laboratory. I came away from the meeting and from the room with the distinct feeling, however, that the panel had deliberately moved to debunk the whole subject and not to give it the serious scientific attention which it deserved. The voice you just heard was that of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, noted astronomer, professor, and scientific advisor to UFO studies undertaken by the U.S. Air Force under Project Sign, Project Grudge, and the best-known Project Blue Book. But as we heard, Hynek was also brought in to contribute his time and skills on a committee known as the Robertson Panel. This panel was funded by the CIA in 1952 in response to widespread UFO reports. The panel concluded that most UFOs could be explained as misidentification of mundane aerial objects, and the remaining minority could, in all likelihood, be explained with further study. Not only that, but they believed that a public relations campaign should be undertaken in order to debunk UFOs and reduce public interest in the entire subject. Hynek disagreed that many of these reports were mundane, having spoken to and investigated hundreds of UFO accounts. He gradually went from skeptic and debunker to an open-minded believer. He would eventually found QFOS, in 1973, a UFO research organization working outside of government jurisdiction. Many organizations like this would follow, working alongside mainstream scientists in an effort to find answers to these UFO sightings that were happening all over the world. But a blurry line had seemingly been drawn between the UFO world and the scientific world, stigma and ridicule being the main cause. But when had this ridicule and mistrust truly began? When people as prominent as Dr. Hynek are involved with UFO research, does it not constitute a serious study without a debunking agenda? And how does the history of UFOs play a role in the overall discourse of what we consider ufology? 
Later in the show, we'll hear from a professor of modern history at Penn State University on just that. But first, I want to talk about an article that recently came out in the New York Times on April 24th. It was written by Ralph Blumenthal and featured the work of Cheryl Costa, a colleague of mine who also hails from my hometown of Syracuse, New York. Go Orangemen. The article caught my attention because it is extremely rare for the UFO topic to be covered in the New York Times, let alone be taken as seriously as it is here. The article is titled, People Are Seeing UFOs Everywhere, and This Book Proves It. Okay, so it's not the most eloquent headline of all time, but it gets right to the point. UFOs are reported all over the world, but Cheryl and her spouse Linda have undertaken the arduous task of compiling the first ever comprehensive statistical summary of close encounters, organized county by county in each state and the District of Columbia from the years 2001 to 2015. It is literally a book of charts and graphs in which they've published in book form called UFO Sightings Desk Reference. They were able to obtain their data from two organizations, MUFON and the National UFO Reporting Center. When asked why she decided to take on this project, Cheryl stated, We are doing the government's job for them. We wanted to do our bit for disclosure. It's something the government should have been doing. We're doing scientific research. What's crazy is not being willing to look at research. Now, I spoke to Cheryl the day this article released, and she told me that this article could really open people's eyes to the proliferation of UFO reports across the country, from county to county, city to city, and state to state level. And I completely agree with her on this. Not only that, but the book even breaks down the type of UFOs reported, the times, and the exact locations. If you've ever wanted to know what's what with your state, city, and town in terms of UFOs, I can't recommend adding this book to your UFO library enough. And if this article has anything to prove, it's that mainstream media, with all its faults, is willing to tackle the UFO question, even if the work is being done on a civilian level, just like J. Allen Hynek and so many others across the world, like Cheryl. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes, and wanted to personally congratulate Cheryl and Linda on this achievement and on the release of this essential reference book. We'll have them on to discuss in the near future. Now, for today's guest. Greg Agigian is Associate Professor of Modern History at Penn State University, where he conducts research and teaches about the history of the human sciences and medicine. He is presently writing a history of UFOs and alien contact as a global cultural phenomenon in the 20th and 21st centuries. He also runs the noted blog, The UFO Past which explores the UFO and alien contact phenomena. Today, we talk about the mistrust between UFO researchers and the mainstream scientific community, and we put the question forward as to why academia, and historians in particular, seem to have shied away from the entire UFO subject. So, without further ado, let's talk to Greg Agigian. Today... We're going to hear from an unconventional guest in the best of ways, guys, and someone whose work I have come to deeply respect in a field that, <laughs> frankly, sorely needs it. And that is Mr. Greg Agigian, Associate Professor of Modern History at Penn State. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, I'm happy to be here. 
Yeah, so we, we've connected a few times now. I did feature you in the book uh, in a section that doesn't get brought up often. And that was the chapter in my book uh, based solely around science versus ufology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had found a really good article that you'd written for uh, the Public Understanding of Science Journal. And that's how we connected. And then we once again connected in Arizona. Uh, that was a... Uh, very serendipitous thing that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. That proved to be really neat, right? Well, we'll I'm sure we'll get to how you, how you and I met there and what we were doing at some point down the line. Absolutely. Yes, we will. Um, well, I guess a good way to start is um, I have to ask, as I'm sure some of the listeners are very interested, how does a professor of modern history get involved with the UFO topic? What were you thinking, man? <laughs> I've had some people ask me that. Well, uh, uh, I'll give you the long version. How's that? Perfect. The, the, the long version is actually, I think you start out with uh, my youth. Okay. So like so many people I know uh, who get involved or who, are, who, who talk about getting interested in UFOs and alien contact and all that stuff, it all began when I was a kid. I, I was utterly, utterly fascinated with this stuff growing up. Um, I'm old enough to say that ha- we're talking about the, the late 60s and the 1970s. And uh, um, I could not stop reading about the stuff, wanting to hear about this stuff. Um, and for me, it was this sense of, of discovery. It was this sense of here was a riddle. Um, what is this? Is this something that is genuine? If it is something genuine, what does it all add up to? Um, uh, and that's where I think I initially, in a sense, got the bug. Um, but from there, um, really what happened was then I also became exposed to debunkers. Um, uh, people like Carl Sagan, who were who I, I would I now sort of see as mu- much more of a kind of a historically much more of a moderating figure, but we might get to that at some point. Um, even people like Phil Class and, and people like that, and that too interested me. I was I was really curious about that, um, and so I read a lot about their stuff. I loved hearing interviews with them. I even got to see Carl Sagan once at a at a local university. Oh wow. Uh, Talk. Yeah, that was that was great. That was fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, very naturally curious person. Obviously, that's why I guess I ended up becoming an academic. And uh, that's where I really was. Inter- I got interested in this stuff. And I will say that as time went by, as I went, <clears throat> got into after high school and into college, the interest kind of waned and my interests went in other kinds of directions and things. Mm-hmm. So now fast forward Many, many years and fast forward to a few years ago, a colleague of mine uh, who I really respect and does great research uh, was approached me. Uh, we, we were talking. We were actually on a panel together. And one of the things you got to know about me is I kind of wear a number of different hats. I'm a I'm a historian of science and medicine, but I also uh, am a historian of modern Europe and modern Germany. Um, and there are a lot of people who don't know anything about my life as a historian of science and only know me as a historian of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she was on a panel with me and, and she was giving this paper on this really interesting topic about this uh, in- interesting, odd kind of charismatic figure after World War II running around Germany, proselytizing the Germans. And um, and uh, 
she was saying that it was part of a project that she was working on with somebody that was a history of the occult in Germany. And I, I, I came to her after that and I said, you know, I've always wondered, <clears throat> did, did Germans, did, did the whole UFO thing ever happen in Germany? Mm-hmm. She's like, I have no idea. Why don't you write something on that? And I saw, I said to her, I think I said, oh, I don't have time for that. I've got other things I've got to do and all. <laughs> but, you know, it triggered something in me. And I thought, well, let me just look into it. And I started digging around. And in fact, I found all this stuff about um, the first reports of UFOs and the first reports in Germany uh, after World War II and in the 1950s. And I ended up writing an article on it. I ended up sending it to her and said, you know what? I've written this up. But I don't think it, any of it has to do anything with the occult for you. I don't think you're going to find it a, a really particularly germane. And she said, yeah, yeah, it's not. <laughs> so I sent it off to another place. But, but that's when I started working on that. I started talking with friends. And, I, and, and I, uh, I remember one friend in particular. And he said, you know, you ought to work on a whole history. Of, of the whole UFO thing. And I was like, no, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, yeah, you're right. Why not? <laughs> um, and for me, it's been, uh, in a sense, it's not just for me this kind of curious new um, subject matter to get into. For me, it's kind of almost like going home. I, I now read and, and pouring over things I remember encountering when I was much younger now with the you know the the eyes of an adult but also with the with the head of a, of a historian and so for me it's kind of uh, an interesting uh, phenomenon for me personally because i come back to something that i once remember uh, uh pouring over in a lot of detail but now i do it in a kind of a different way and that's kind of for me in part the enthusiasm i have wow that that's that's such an interesting way to look at it greg i i know I don't know if you feel the same way, but yes, I became struck and fascinated by this topic at a very young age as well when, you know, your imagination is just running wild. You're seeing these images of flying saucers and books and you're imagining the people piloting these or where mm-hmm. they come mm-hmm. from. And then as you get older and your skeptical lens starts to come in, um, you know, that, that, that'll happen. But then that core phenomenon that core fascination with you with ufos i should say uh it remains and there are parts of it that remain and that that's what i find most fascinating that even as you grow older and you become more i i don't want to use the word cynical but (laughs) skeptical Mm. i think would be the perfect word uh there are those fascinating mysteries that still remain yeah i think so i think so yeah and that that's that to me is part of what it keeps sparking this interest and, and triggering it and 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 to now also do what I do right because my my I come to this as a historian now um, with years of experience of writing on a variety of subjects uh, as I have done over the years and um, what for me what that with that what I what, what what I'm doing is something that of course I never, Back then, when I was younger, I never thought of it in these terms. But in a sense, what I what I do is um, uh, to really ask historical questions about all the different participants in this drama surrounding UFOs. Mm-hmm. So I am interested in putting, if you will, 
everybody who has sort of been engaged in this topic, you know, in some form or another that's 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 relevant, obviously not literally everybody, but but put them and all of us really under the microscope. And by that, what I mean is um, I want to ask questions about um, who became interested in these kinds of things? How did they become interested and when? How did those interests change over, the t- over time? And that means looking at the history of ufology, for instance, and seeing how it transformed and changed over time. Looking at um, not just the reports about alien contact over the, over the decades, but how people responded to those in different ways over time. And then added to that, the other thing that I don't think I sense then, but now in retrospect, I realize I was doing myself, is to also appreciate the fact that when you write the history of UFOs and the history of the UFO phenomenon, you also have to include in that the history of the scientific community, the history of debunkers. And how about the history of just plain old folks, I guess who like we're like you and me growing up, right? Who are just kind of curious about this stuff, right? Um, I will say right off the bat, I have never seen an unidentified, I've seen things I didn't understand, maybe I couldn't tell what they were in the sky, but I'd never seen anything that would have struck me as a flying saucer in my life. But I was absolutely curious, phenomenally curious about all this stuff. It's so in part, you also have to add those types of folks into the conversation of how this phenomenon was understood and how those understandings changed over time. So for me, the, the, the UFO phenomenon is what I think one might call in, in, some, in some sociological circles, a world. Mm-hmm. The, the world of UFOs with all of these kinds of casts of characters all involved, all playing a part in, in this drama that has played out over now, what is it, almost seven decades since uh, uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Right. Well, let's let's sort of unravel that, Greg. In your opinion, uh, that understanding or that, that scientific look at this phenomenon, when, when did you, in your research, come to find that the scientific institutions, when they started taking this topic seriously, if ever... Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting issue. It all depends on how we want to understand what it is that the scientific community was interested in. So one could say that scientific institutions have either never or rarely shown any uh, kind of interest in the UFO phenomenon. I don't think that's really the case, but one could somewhat make that argument in the sense that uh, uh, most of the major scientific institutions, you know, the, the bodies and organizations and, and, and the major institutions of higher learning, universities, right? Um, uh, most of them for, for many, many decades, or at least the first few decades, um, tended to just simply um, uh, neglect uh, the topic of UFOs um, and alien contact, they, they didn't really tend to make any kind of major pronouncements on the subject. Um, they didn't ha- hold 
have scientific commissions that were formed or anything like that to study the phenomenon. Um, and generally, the kind of tacit assumption was that this stuff is so silly or so ridiculous that we don't really need to get into it. Um, what you, what I found was in, in certain places, what you'd find, say, in the 50s was oftentimes uh, uh, an astronomer or an astrophysicist might be asked by a journalist about uh, a sighting or about some phenomenon, and then they would sort of chime in on the subject. Um, that you see that starting to change some in the 1960s. I think in the 60s and 70s is probably in some ways a kind of a heyday when you start to see um, academic scientists um, who work in, in, in this in an area that would be relevant, directly germane to the to the whole question of extraterrestrial visitation. You start to see them demonstrate more interest. In it. You do have people like James McDonald in the 1960s playing a prominent role. You see even people like Carl Sagan. Um, uh, expressing interest in, in this in this subject, um, you get, of course, the the the, the development in, uh, in the United States in 1966 is the founding, the setting up of the Condon Committee mm -hmm. um, that was funded by the Air Force. Very controversial uh, panel that meets and or you know and studies the subject for two years. I know most ufologists are quite critical of the work of that committee, quite rightly so. I think it probably in the end. Um, and, but even after that, you know, 1969, uh, the American um, Association for the Advancement of Science under with Carl Sagan, Thornton Page, uh, uh, organize a panel on the subject of UFOs. Uh, so there is there is a phase in which certain kinds of leading figures and even leading institutions do say this is worthy of study. This is worthy of analysis. Uh, now, if we understand and we think of the UFO phenomenon in the sense I said before, the world of UFOs, uh, uh, then what is clear is that um, it's social scientists of various kinds who have since probably, I'd say, right around the mid-1960s, have shown a great deal of interest in this uh, and have taken it seriously as a sociological phenomenon. So we have anthropologists, sociologists, social psychologists, clinical psychologists of various kinds, folklorists, who have written numerous, numerous articles over the decades, since, like I said, the mid to late 1960s, looking at so, uh, UFO organizations, UF, per, the perception of UFOs, uh, and the psychophysics of it, of, of, of the phenomenon, um, analysis of the kinds of tales that are recounted by contactees, people like that. All of that has been studied in, in a great deal of depth and continues to go on. So in that sense, um, people take the phenomenon sociologically seriously, but they don't necessarily take seriously the claims that in fact uh, aliens are visiting us in in these in these machines. There's a third way, however, I would say, in which you'd have to say that scientists have almost always taken this stuff seriously, and th that is with regard to the possibility of there being extraterrestrial life, and to thinking about what communication with those beings would be like, what the the probabilities of an engagement with them would be. Um, at any particular period of time. We know that 
um, historians of science have shown that dating back to the ancients, the general tacit assumption of uh, and, and uh, 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 yeah tacit assumption um, and sometimes quite explicit assumption of most uh, astronomers was that in fact other planets were inhabited and really when you look in the say even in the 19th and early 20th century it was widely accepted that probably planets within our solar system were inhabited by uh, intelligent civilizations. Um, uh, and so that already was there. And there was there was already in, you know, uh, uh, at different periods of time, but particularly, say, if you look at the inner war years, in the 1920s, uh, uh, actual attempts were, th were, were sort of uh, or, 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 or projects were sort of set in motion to think through and to explore the possibility. How might we um, communicate with these intelligent beings, particularly with, with people who believe that Mars was inhabited? By intelligent civilizations, and so there, all sorts of, 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 of ideas were put forward of how we might do that, how we might communicate the, using all sorts of lenses that might um, uh, set some light uh, in that direction in some way, or the use of radio was seen as a possible way of at least hearing something. Uh, from these other planets. And so by the time you get to the 1960s, for instance, uh, you already have this kind of idea established. Well, with radio astronomy that's developed after the war, after World War II, you then have set up for yourself all the conditions that are ripe for what's going to be established at the beginning of the 60s, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the SETI project. Right. The SETI project and I find this very fascinating, and I, I don't know if people like Seth Shostak and others really talk about this much, but but the SETI project and the kinds of ideas that it was that it has historically been playing with, and the kind of motivations of the people involved in SETI um, over the over the decades, bears a great great deal of resemblance with ufology in my view, and there's a way in which I think SETI as a project and SETI as not just a project and, and, a, and, a, and a, having a purpose, but as something that also carries with it a set of values, right? Mm -hmm. Is something that has a lot in common with ufology. And so I think that that's one of those places where you have to say, uh, SETI, people involved in SETI, people involved in ufology, actually in, in many ways have a lot more in common than maybe often is seen as being the case. Right, yeah. We, we always tend to uh, to separate these two. Um, I know many uh, quote-unquote ufologists who won't even look at the work of SETI. They, they think it's a waste of time. They believe that this possible non-human intelligence is already here visiting the planet. And again, Greg, like you said, that is a, an entire sociological can of worms to open. Um, but what mm. I find most fascinating, too, is this idea that the UFO can be connected to any hard science, any soft science, uh, even, you know, in your case, uh, in terms of history. Uh, we can connect this topic to almost anything in our society. And that is, in my opinion, an extremely powerful thing. Uh, no matter what the source of these UFOs are, or even the possibility of life where life elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, yeah, I, no, that's absolutely the case. I mean, you have to realize that 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 uh, 
there, there, that, that no matter whether or not you think that these um, uh, sightings reflect a reality of extraterrestrial visitors or not, um, no matter where one is on the spectrum on, on those kinds of issues, of the range of different views that are out there on the subject, the phenomenon raises all sorts of questions for us. Um, at the very start, right, as you sort of are hinting at, right, the, the whole issue of extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations raises all of these questions about um, who we are, how unique we are. Are we terribly unique? Uh, how does evolution work elsewhere, right? Um, it raises questions about communication. Uh, how do we communicate with, with beings from another world when we don't even have any clear sense of what they are, how they operate, what they look like um, in many cases, right? So, so that you, you, you end, end up having to also, however, reflect back on yourself. And this is something that comes from a lot of my research that I've done over the years on other subjects. Um, and that is um, the idea that oftentimes when we deal with a phenomenon like we're dealing with here, that is something that in which there's a great deal of unclarity. There's a great deal here that is fuzzy, very, very fuzzy. Um, what we are going to invariably do is to project a lot of ourselves into that phenomenon. Mm. Um, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. I don't see that as a quote-unquote bad thing. It just simply is the reality of what we do as human beings. And so in that sense, right, uh, the UFO and alien contact phenomenon is in many ways a kind of a Rorschach test for all of us and for us as a community of, of human beings, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, when you become so deeply embedded in something, it's going to ultimately affect your life and influence your work moving forward, I would assume. Yeah, exactly. And and that's, you know, that's another thing that I, I would I would point out about this connection with SETI. There's a, I recently read a, a really interesting uh, dis unpublished dissertation by a fellow by the name of uh, Arthur, F F I don't, I want to pronounce his name right, Arthur Fricka or Arthur Fricky, um, who wrote this in the early 2000s at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. It's a really fascinating dissertation, which he looks at SETI, but looked at it in connection also with ufology. And he made a really interesting point that is so obvious I, it was one of those duh moments when I thought to myself, like, wow, how come I never really thought about that? And that is, he said, about SETI was that SETI's major issue and major sort of uh, challenge was also the, nat the very nature of its project, which was that SETI, for all the time that it's existed since the 1960s, right, it is never once ever had any positive result, right? <laughs> so far, they've gotten nothing. Mm -hmm. So when SETI tries to raise money, when SETI tries to uh, engage the public in the value of what they're doing, they actually have nothing to show for it. And that wasn't a critic. He didn't mean it critically. He said, but what this does is this sets up a dynamic for SETI. SETI must now generate enthusiasm for something for which it can offer no real concrete evidence of, of, the very, of the very thing that legitimates the project itself. 
That's ufology a, has had yeah. a somewhat similar problem over the years, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense, no concrete. You know, the you know the the the, the classic one, right? Why why doesn't a UFO just plop down on the White House lawn, <laughs> right? So yeah. that that to me is kind of intriguing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in terms of that, I want to sort of dive into Greg the this idea of the mistrust uh, as you you've written about in the past um, between you know, the scientific community and what we can, I guess, consider UFO researchers or possibly investigators. Uh, you wrote an entire paper on this topic of when and how this mistrust really began and uh, why, why, why that happened and where mm. that takes us in furthering, you know, UFO research. Well, yeah. And, and so this, uh, I became very curious about looking at the kind of uh, I think one has to say it's been historically fairly uh, uh, rampant in, in if we sort of divide up the what I would, you know, it's, it, it can be difficult to sometimes put these things in neat little boxes. But ufology on the one hand and academic science on the other. That's not to say there aren't ufologists who are themselves academic scientists. Um, but what I'm saying is I'm talking about the u- ufology activity that done outside of the halls and institutions of academia and and there's there has been this sort of mutual mistrust and for me as a historian we don't take anything for granted nothing is taken for granted and what we do is we tend to our our kind of assumption is that when something um when there's a a set of uh, relationships or an institution that's out there um uh, that we don't just simply accept it as a given, but rather look at how it was made, how it was created. What is the process? And that's what I was interested in. What is the process by which mistrust was sown um, in different communities? And I think the thing that uh, that struck me was to say was to see that, in a sense, that mistrust between the acad- the academy, right, the ivory tower, and on the other hand, ufology. Um, Comes has come about. I think a it's come about through a set of processes. So for starters, it came about um, uh, uh, over the course of the 1940s and 1950s, really generated by what was really the initial distrust, and that was the distrust of of the Air Force in the case of the United States or the Defense Ministry in the case of the United Kingdom. But the ways. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In which information about UFOs um, was strictly guarded, need-to-know basis, right, mm -hmm. kept from the public, um, as part of concerns about national security. Um, and so these military institutions that dealt with information about UFOs as intelligence, right, naturally folded into their concerns about keeping information classified rather than spreading that information forth. And that is when you look at the initial sort of issue of mistrust. That's what it really centered upon for many ufologists was government officials and authorities. Over time, as scientists began to speak out and speak against this and to also shut out ufology from the halls of the academy, I think that's when you start to see this um, uh, distrust start to play, I think, somewhat of a greater role in, 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 in uh, the relations between these two sets of, of communities, if you will. And that's the thing, and that this is the second thing, the B part, is that that, that that mistrust, I think I concluded, was not really the result of really ufologists distrusting science. I don't think that's it. I don't think the evidence shows that at all. Um, uh, but rather, this emerged because, in a sense, the academics and the ufologists have historically, in a sense, talked past one another, that their research projects have led them in different directions, so that um, it's based on, and to some extent, some misunderstandings, some mis mutual misunderstandings. Um, uh, but it's also, it, it, it also reflects the fact that, and I think this is the interesting thing, is that what I started to discover is something that, that colleagues of mine in sociology of science have also discovered about other communities where there's a, a fair amount of, of say, skepticism or downright cynicism about, it, about a, uh, uh, academia, is that that, that that is rooted in less a skepticism or a distrust of science on the part of ufologists than a distrust of scientists. Mm -hmm. Right. That it's that that's the problem that they believe they historically have believed scientists are um, elitist or scientists are people who are guarding their privilege or scientists are closed minded, uh, that kind of stuff. But the uh, the assumption that many people in academia have that people who are um, interested in UFOs or people who have worked in ufology are anti-science, um, that I don't think there's a lot of evidence for. I think it's just the opposite. And I don't know what your experience is, but I, th I find that most people interested in ufology are really quite interested in science. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right? you, you look at the civilian research organizations, and that is literally their mission, their mantra, is to look at this topic from a scientific uh, viewpoint and to try to find some sort of repeatable evidence to bring forward. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree on that. And then you have psychologists looking at it from their angle. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we could go in circles on that whole aspect. But yeah, I, I don't see a distrust between the scientists and uh, 
and ufologist, as it were, um, I do see a uh, a lack of uh, acknowledgement from the academic level at some points. But that is where someone like you comes in and says there is a place for this, especially in your field of history. Uh, and if you don't mind, Greg, I, I'd love to bring up this piece that you you wrote for the Queen Mary Center mm. for the History of Emotions uh, called UFOs and Historians. I want to talk about how, as a historian, um, you can bring something to the UFO topic and have it been taken seriously. Uh, could you run us through what you cover in this piece? Yeah, so... What I wanted to write about was and sort of speak to is something that, as I say in it, that might be the most curious thing of all in the UFO phenomenon. And it's not a particular case. It's not a sighting. It's not any it's not a photograph. It was when I started to embark on this project, it was the realization that the last and only time an academic historian, somebody trained in, in history and working at a university as a historian. The last and only time anybody has written a book on this subject in English was in 1975. David Jacobs, who I know is going to be familiar to a lot of your listeners. Um, David Jacobs' book, which is standing right here on my desk in front of me, The UFO Controversy in America, right? Mm -hmm. uh, very good book. Still stands the test of time. It's a, it's a really quite a good book on the subject. Really remarkable. Um, and, uh, and then there's silence. Um, that to me was interesting uh, and remains interesting because for me, sort of the question I sort of talk about this is, is it's, it's peculiar. It's peculiar for two reasons. One is because, um, the U, the world of UFOs, as I was calling it earlier, the UFO and alien contact phenomenon since World War II has been a major preoccupation, a major endeavor for decades. Uh, historians don't tend to neglect something that big, yeah. right? Uh, how, why? I, I can't imagine. It would be like uh, neglecting pop music, right? You, you don't say, I'm not going to study pop music. We're not interested. You say, but it's a hugely important part, right, of the post-war world. Um, so that's kind of odd. But then what also doubly made it, makes it strange to me is that there are all of these other communities of scholars, as I was just mentioning before, who in fact have studied this. Uh, the folklorists, uh, the people who work in uh, literary studies, religious scholars, uh, sociologists, social psychologists, they've all looked at this phenomenon. They've all explored it. So it, it sort of, for me, it, it sort of um, uh, led me to make really two kinds of observations. One was to say what I think is some of the things that we can do as historians. And one was to, again, raise this question, why are the historians so silent? Why are we, why is my tribe so <laughs> strangely silent on this subject when, when so many other people in the social sciences and humanities aren't? Um, and so that's kind of where I, I went with this um, in that regard. That's really interesting. Well, I'd love to, um, I, I'll definitely link the listeners to those examples that you found. Uh, it's fascinating. It really is. Well, you brought up, you know, the fact, Greg, uh, no certain case or, uh, you know, incident that occurred. But I do kind of want to touch on that. Mm -hmm. In your research, what 
Are there any cases you've turned to where it really stuck out to you that there is a obvious anomalous phenomenon happening? You know, there's there are a million answers to every UFO case, let's be honest. But what do you turn to that it really makes you personally feel, wow, there is something to this and it possibly may not be from here? Boy, that's a good question. I can't, I can't, I can't say there's any particular individual case that makes me feel that way. I think more the case, I think what it, what I will see, and and as you can imagine, and you know anybody who is in, in, interested in ufology does this all the time. So I'm not doing anything that ufologists haven't been doing for decades. But you know, I go through so so many cases as I read and I comb over the archives and look at cases. And in some ways, for me, it's these really, really innocuous things, these these things that I will read that are from, you know, some small newsletter in Ohio in 1953, or, you know, or something I read in a in a in a in a in some sort of a periodical from the 1960s from uh, 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 France or Sweden, right? And it's a, just a small little piece. Um, sometimes those, to me, are, are in fact kind of the most engaging uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but the other part of it is, I would say, it, it's probably when you get this kind of sense of the. Uh, 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 the the cumulative effect of hearing so many stories. I think that's when you you si- certainly sit there and and have to say that um, uh, it's it's difficult to say that some one explanation right uh, is going to explain this. You know, you, ufologists have, have for for a long time right now right have have criticized Phil Kloss for his his. Um, attachment to the ball lightning thesis and there's no question that that one explanation <clears throat> doesn't doesn't do it for these kinds of things i i do think what i would say is this what i find interesting as a historian is i'm interested in what people other people what people at different times have found compelling so that to me is what's kind of interesting in that regard right mm-hmm. um so when i read I'm often less interested in, or not at all interested, to be honest, in trying to persuade myself one way or the other about the origins of these things or what was somebody seeing. In many ways, that to me is, is not centrally important. What's important for me is to unpack what it is if I'm reading a particular ufologist from a particular particular period of time. I'm interested in knowing what he or she found particularly compelling. What in that particular case did they find compelling in, in one form or another? That to me is very, very interesting. And so kind of that's that's in the end what I what I really track is the, are those kinds of things. So I'm not kind of I'm not trying to uh, uh, divert away from your question. But I guess it has to do probably with the mindset in which I go in and I read this stuff, right? Absolutely. Uh, is that I think of it in these terms. And so that is what's constantly uh, constantly on my mind. 
Yeah, and like you mentioned, just the profundity of reports and cases out there can really lead one to not not make a determination or find a source, but to uh, you know wonder what could be out there and what it, what it all means. Well, in terms of you know those academics, you you mentioned David Jacobs for one, highly controversial when he worked at Temple. I know that he was given some flack for the work he'd done. What do you make, Greg, of this whole idea of the ridicule factor within ufology and in terms? terms of the academic world, I would say. How do we move past that? Yeah. Um, So the ridicule thing is something I have increasingly become quite fascinated with. And and, um, I've I've started to work through some of my ideas about it because it's another one of these things that is so ubiquitous in the history of the UFO and alien contact phenomena that that nobody has ever thought, I think, I think taking it seriously to consider what role does it play in all of these things? I mean, yes, people talk about the fact, well, of course it means I kept quiet about this, or it means, you know, uh, you, you do have the, the, the recent article or relatively recent article, God, I'm blanking on their name, but the two political scientists who've written about the, the UFO taboo and have talked about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to me, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, um, the, the, the function of what role ridicule plays in helping to shape how ufology operates, how people who are engaged in UFO, uh, who have UFO and alien contact interests engage with one another, engage with the outside world. That to me is very important stuff. It's a, it's a social historical phenomenon that needs to be understood. So in part, I would sit there and I would say, to some extent, um, ridicule is, uh, I think, in all likelihood, something that is never going to be eliminated from this. And that is because this is what people do who have, you know, really different opinions about any subject is ridicule. I mean, just think about one's political views and one's relatives who don't agree with you about your <laughs> politics. And you know right away that ridicule will always be with us. Yeah. Um, I think in in academia, um, I think one of the ways we we need to do it, and I do this quite a bit in my own work, because one of the things I do, in fact, do is is try to persuade colleagues to consider this thing and this phenomenon and the people engaged in the work of UFO research um, to take them seriously, to take this as a serious um, engagement with knowledge in a way that is on par with other things. It's not to say you have to say you agree with it or or even like it, but it is to sit there and acknowledge that this is another human endeavor to know the world around us. Um, uh, and, and that to me is, is to value it on that, on that basis. So um, I think one of the ways you do that is to do the work I'm doing. It is to uh, have these kinds of engagements, engagements like you and I have, and, and these kinds of ways of talking with one another to get a better appreciation of what we're all up to um, so that maybe we can avoid some of the misunderstandings we had. The other thing that I find really interesting and that I'm, um, I'm sort of thinking through is to understand one other thing. And that is to really appreciate that ridicule doesn't just exist outside of, of ufology, right, from the outside, from academics or lay people who think this is all nonsense. It exists right there within ufology, right? Right, right. I mean, 
One of the things that has caught my eye is dating back from almost the very beginning. Ufologists after ufologists, and you probably had this experience too, if you talk to people, especially privately, right? Mm -hmm. Virtually every ufologist will say, or UFO researcher will sit there and they will tell you about the stuff they work on with the, and the people who they read know. And then they will say something like, now, you know, I don't have a lot in common with those nut jobs or those crackpots, right? So many folk, folks in the UFO research community themselves, right? Yes. Cast aspersions on others, ridicule other people within that community. And that to me is, is also interesting as a historical phenomenon about what role does that play in helping to shape some of the conflicts and the divisions, right, that have, that have been a chronic part of UFO, ufology over the decades, right? That's, that's one of those things that helps to, in fact, create that fractious environment that at different times has certainly hurt the public image of UFO research over the years. So that to me is also intriguing, this, the role of ridicule in that regard. Yes, we are our worst enemies at times. And I, I'm sure that goes for any scientific field or endeavor, um, even within academia. Uh, there's always this internal fighting or internal debate going on, which can be healthy at times. I mean, as long as it's a civil discourse. Um, but I think what you really hit on, Greg, is that word consideration. It's not you know, persuading someone to some absolute truth that you have the answer. And if you don't agree with me, you're just wrong. You're plain wrong. It's considering the possibility, let's say, of the UFO phenomenon being real and possibly being of extraterrestrial in origin or not. And just understanding that and asking questions, I think that's key and where that ridicule starts to uh, decay. And like you said, I don't think it'll ever go away completely. We will never all be on the same page, especially when it comes to this topic. But I think you, you hit it on the head, man, considering the possibility and opening people's eyes and just having a conversation. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I for me... For me, I see this all, you know, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier about how the whole world of UFOs touches on so many different aspects of how we understand ourselves and the world around us. Uh, if one understands all of us involved, whatever it is, and we could talk about it, you know, not even just science and UFOs, we could talk about any, almost any subject, is to uh, you know, I know people, for instance, I mean, I love sports. I love watching that, you know, mm -hmm. sports and rooting for my teams. I know people who absolutely hate it, absolutely hate it, and, <laughs> and don't get it and say, I will never understand how a grown man can sit there and shout his lungs out at his hockey team winning or losing. <laughs> and I, but, but it is to appreciate that, to sit there and say that is fair, but it is to sit there and say, well, you know that this is yet another one of these aspects of what makes us human human beings and our and cultural life, right? These institutions, these endeavors of ours to um, enjoy ourselves, to be curious about the world, to uh, commune with others, right? There's all sorts of dimensions of these things that uh, we're engaged in. Um, and so, you know, I'm not much of a gardener. I don't pack garden at all, but I know there are people who do it and they can tell me all about why they love being out in their garden all day. So 
to me, I'm curious about that. And I, instead of ridiculing the gardener for gardening and not, you know, watching sports with me, <laughs> uh, I think that same kind of mentality needs to be there. That You put it rightly. It's about consideration. But it's also, to my mind, it's about connecting what I would think all of us who are interested in studying things like UFOs or you or the history of ufology are interested in is that we're curious. We're curious people. We want to know something more about the world and we go into it, not entirely clear where this is going to take us. That to me is something that should be the foundation of consideration. Doesn't mean it's the end point. We may in fact have completely disparate views in the end, but if we, if we come back to that time and time again, revisit that in our conversations, I think that to me is the key to what is a civil, as you put it, a civil conversation, a civil discussion, even if we vehemently degree, uh, disagree uh, when we reach our conclusions. Oh, yes. Very well put. Well, Greg, uh, you're going to be having some civil conversations uh, in England soon. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is very exciting when I heard about this. Um, I, I do receive your uh, newsletter, which we'll also link to. Um, where are you Where are you heading, my friend? What are you going to be talking about in England? So, yeah, I've got a series of talks I'm giving in London. I'm going to be actually doing an interview with some very fascinating folks at, at uh, uh, Burbeck uh, University, uh, University of London, right, if I'm not mistaken, College of London. But Burbeck, uh, there's a project there called the Hidden Persuaders Project project which is engaged in has been doing research in the history of ver- various cold war efforts aimed at persuading people uh, or or mo- moving people to do one thing or another so they do everything from advertisement to subliminal messaging hypnotism psi phenomenon they're looking at the history of that during the cold war and they're going to be interviewing me um, for their website uh, but I'm going to be giving a, a number of different talks uh, uh, one is um, going to be uh, at the yeah the que- for, sponsored by the Queen Mary Center uh, for the history of of of, of uh, center for the history of emotions um, that looks at the history of the UFO phenomenon um, uh, through the kind of prism of suspense. Um, and what I mean there is that I think for so long, for the for the folklorists, I talked about all these people who have studied the U- the history of the UFO phenomenon. What's what's dominated the scene has been this image that that that. Uh, that UFO, the interest in UFOs and the preoccupation with it, particularly in, say, the 1950s and 60s into the 70s, was really built around people who were paranoid. That it's built on a kind of a nervousness and an anxiousness and, a, and, and fears of the Cold War and anxieties, and that those anxieties then translated into conspiracy theories and men in black and all of that. Um, I don't I wouldn't say that's entirely wrong, but I would say that is a very, very incomplete picture of both, I think, the Cold War, but also an incomplete picture of ufology. Right. Because uh, not everyone. And in fact, I would argue that maybe most ufologists have not been believers in conspiracy theories and and also don't sort of emphasize these dark sides of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so my argument is that it misses 
the reality that when you particularly look at any given time, but especially this very period of time that people tend to glom onto, it was actually a period in which people were outright, you know, delighted, enthused, excited, uh, uh, found it exhilarating, right? That that UFOs were out there. Um, uh, that 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 the possibility that these these uh, vehicles were being manned by aliens. Uh, that a new dawn was a, a a new age was dawning. These kinds of things are being missed and neglected in that. And so I began to think more about how can we frame the 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 historical sensibilities of the time that helped shape this phenomenon in those early years. And that's when I started to realize that the sentiment that really dominated the Cold War, but I think also dominated. Uh, particularly those those early decades, really, I think all the way up into the 80s in, in the history of UFO research, was less anxiety and fear than suspense, than mm-hmm. and that sense of what is going on. What, what, what are they? And I, I, I often tell people, I came to that idea when I was looking at UFO photographs. You know, take a look at some of your favorite UFO, flying saucer photographs from that age. Mm-hmm. There they are. And they just sit there, right? And they kind of, they're frozen in time. You may not know much about the context of the photograph. And it just seems to be begging for answers. And saying to you, who am I? What am I? Is this real? Is this this a hoax? Is this genuine? If it's genuine, is it man-made? Right? All of these questions. That, to me, is the key to understanding, I think, the, the allure and the, the, the reason why so many people were fascinated with UFOs, uh, particularly in the earliest decades, say that first generation of folks interested in UFOs, mm-hmm. was, was, it was that sense of mystery, that sense of where is this going? How is this going to end? <laughs> and that, to me, is what I want to capture. So that's one of the, one of the talks I'm giving is going to be on that. Um, doing another one also uh, at another center at University of College of London. This is a center for the history of psychological disciplines on um, uh, what I call uh, looking at the history of how um, how alien contact became pathologized, I'm putting it. In other words, how is it that um, – I put it another way um, – Talk. I start with looking at John Mack, the great figure of John Mack, of mm. course, mm-hmm. innovator in uh, abductee research. Um, and, um, you know, of course, people have asked subsequently within the psychiatric community, like, you know, why did he get involved with these people? How did he become involved with these people? And why did he believe them? Um, and those are all fair enough questions to ask, uh, to be sure. And a lot of people have addressed it. I have kind of flipped it around. My question is like, why were these people finding him? <laughs> right? Hey. Why, why is it that they went to John Mack? Um, if they are people, alien con- if they are people who had contact with aliens, it was a genuine, real experience, they believed, right? They didn't believe that, that they were having hallucinations or, or maybe they thought they might be doing so, but, but, um, but in any event, it's, what's intriguing to me is why is it that they're at his doorstep? 
Why are they in the room with a psychiatrist, right? That indicates something's happened. And particularly if you look at it historically, right? Look at the contactees of the 50s, look at the people, as I do in this paper, I look at some of the people who, who are talked about also into the 1960s. The number of people who ever are talked about ever visiting a clinician, a psychiatrist, uh, after their experience is very, very nominal, right? The number who do that is nominal. You have the big figures, right? You have people like Betty and Barney Hill who end up doing it. Um, Patty Price ends up doing this, right? But but it's it's a small number of people. So something changed, right? We go from a world where contact with aliens, people who say they had contact with aliens don't in fact feel like this requires any kind of clinical intervention to by the time we get into the 80s and 90s, right? And it explodes. <laughs> it explodes. And now Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, Leo Sprinkle, right? John Mack, all of them are engaged in hypnotic regression. All of them have a dimension in which they are looking at this as something that requires a kind of therapeutic intervention mm -hmm. of some kind. How did it get? How did that happen? How did we get there? That's what that's what that paper is about. I explore how it is that we get from point A to point B. Wow, that is fast. I might have to get a plane ticket over there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in. I'll actually be there um, a few weeks after that. I may have to reschedule, Greg. Oh, that sounds neat. absolutely neat. fascinating. You. Well, you know, besides your trip to England, you're going to be in D.C. for a while. Um, I learned that you're going to be doing a fellowship there. This is. So exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about this, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am going to be the Charles A. Lindbergh Chair in Aerospace History wow. at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum uh, for the second half of this year. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So I'll be at the Air and Space Museum where I'm going to really be doing two things. One, I'll be doing some research, conducting research using their library, but I'll probably I'll also be looking, because they're based in D.C., at the Carl Sagan papers, which apparently are massive, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But I'll be looking at Carl Sagan paper and trying to look at some of his work and engagements with uh, ufologists and the UFO phenomenon. Um, uh, I'll be writing as well. But uh, it really, the best part of it is an opportunity to uh, be hanging out with and, and, and exchanging ideas with some of the world's best historians uh, of, of space and space exploration um, and, and anyone interested in aerospace history in general there. Uh, they have a bevy of top-notch uh, historians, frankly, people who know far more about aerospace history than I do. <laughs> so it's an opportunity for me to work with really the, some of the world's best historians. Um, and it and to sort of, you know, pick their brains about some of my observations about these things. There's some uh, people who, you know, and we're, we're talking about people who, you know, for instance, are experts on the history of rocketry, um, uh, folks who are experts in the history of, of astronomy, um, uh, people who uh, have done some really great work on uh, uh, the popular and the cultural and the the history of popular culture surrounding uh, space and space exploration. Um, all of these things are vital to this project I'm working on. And so I'm really looking forward to being able to sit around with 
people who have so much experience, so much knowledge about these things who can give me critical comments and, and, and reflect on my own work and get, get, hopefully refine my arguments a little better than they are at this stage of the game. Wow, that sounds great. I mean, Greg, it, it, I highly respect what you're doing um, both in and out of ufology. I think you really are tapping into something that not many people have done. And I, I do consider you a pioneer in that sense of moving this field forward by looking at the past and seeing what we can learn from that. That is what history is, after all. Well, where can we find out more about the work you're doing and uh, keep up to date with all of this? Well, you can see I have a blog. It's called uh, The UFO Past, and it's uh, my uh, URL is ufopast.com. And there I uh, more or less intermittently uh, post uh, information about some things that are going on, like these talks and stuff that I'm, I'm giving in London. Uh, but every now and again, I'll post a, a brief little essay in there about something I'm working on or uh, post something that, that, that's interesting, like an exhibit that I've heard about that's up there. Um, and uh, yeah, so anything, anything historical about UFOs I'm interested in. So please uh, come on and sign up and subscribe so you can be updated on your email on a regular basis whenever I have something new to post. Oh, that's so great. Well, we'll definitely post links for your talks coming up for our friends in England and uh, of all of Europe, actually. And Greg, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today. I know you're a busy man, and the fact that you could sit down with us for an hour or so to talk UFOs, it, it was highly refreshing and excites me about the future of moving forward with ufology. So thank you so much for joining me My today. pleasure, Ryan. Always great talking with you. Well... That's all I got for you this week, guys, for episode three. If you enjoyed today's show, I'd absolutely love if you'd consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever the hell you happen to listen from. And please also consider sharing the show across your social networks. I'm so unbelievably amazed at how much the show has grown only three episodes in. And with your help, we can continue to grow each and every week. So thank you for your constant support. If you have any guest or topic suggestions or a personal story you'd like to share, you can email me at sprague at somewhereintheskies.com. You can also join our active Facebook page, Somewhere in the Skies Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Somewhere Skies. That's it. I'll see you here next Monday. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.